God, we are thankful uh, for your word. Lord, we thank you that it is direct. We thank you that it is clear. We thank you, God, for the passage that is before us and the level of conviction that is in here. And Lord, I pray for open hearts this morning. Lord, I pray as, as we look to the concept of idolatry, Lord, that you would give us receptive hearts today. Lord, I know that there are people who have walked in here, Lord, who are in bondage to sin. Lord, I know that there are people in here who are enslaved to it. And so God, I pray by the power of Jesus that you would set people free today, that you would break chains, that you would release people from the bondage of sin. God, give us that open heart. So I pray that you would invade those places of our hearts that we may not want you to go. And yet, God, we desperately need you to invade, to bring your power and to bring your grace and your mercy. So God, would you, by your spirit, uh, be free in this room. Work, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're new uh, here, we've been walking through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians over the last several months. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been in chapters eight, nine, and 10, which really form one section. And so uh, we've covered a lot of ground uh, and we're gonna deal with obviously the passage uh, f- uh, verses 14 through 22 today. And then we'll finish chapter 10 um, na- next week. And before we look at our passage, just wanna do a little bit of, of review and, and summary uh, of what chapters eight, nine, and 10 have uh, shown us so far. Uh, Paul has been addressing a specific issue at the church in Corinth. And there are all kinds of questions that these Corinthians uh, have asked Paul about. And really the main question has been, is it okay for them to attend these pagan temple worship services? That's one of the questions. There are others that we'll look at, especially next week. And this question is important for the Corinthians because attending these temple worship services uh, was part of the culture. This is part of what it meant to be a Corinthian. This is the place where they networked, where they made connections. And so it had financial and social implications. And, and you can imagine some of the Corinthians who are part of this church where they were saved out from those religious experiences. They used to frequently attend those pagan worship services, but Jesus saved them. And now they're at this church and they're wondering, is it okay to still attend uh, those services? And Paul has been trying to uh, answer that question. And in answering the question, Paul has really laid before us a number of important principles. Just by way of review, what we've seen so far is the role of the conscience within a believer. We've looked at what it is and how it aids us in matters that are not necessarily black and white within the Christian life. We've also seen that you can have a strong conscience, meaning that you can um, you have more of a freedom to enjoy certain liberties in the Christian life where the Bible doesn't outright forbid something. But then you can also have a weak conscience, not, not meaning that you're inferior spiritually, but meaning that your conscience is more sensitive. It's more restrictive. We've seen that Paul lays the bulk of the responsibility on the strong in conscience to make sure that they are not putting a stumbling block uh, to those who are weak in conscience. We've seen that love, not just knowledge, should govern our actions and our decisions and our behaviors uh, towards one another, that we should be willing to give up those Christian liberties and freedoms for the sake of others as Paul demonstrated uh, in chapter nine. 
We've also seen even last week that Paul warns us of the danger of becoming spiritually disqualified. He used the nation of Israel as that example of falling into idolatry. And then of course, we've seen that issues related to the conscience is not just about unity, but within issues related to the conscience, there are all kinds of issues underneath the surface. Uh, There's pride, uh, there's judgmentalism, there's licentiousness, there's legalism uh, that's at stake when you're dealing with matters of uh, the conscience. It's kind of this playground for sanctification to be worked out as we figure out how to best live with one another uh, in unity. And you can imagine at the church in Corinth, uh, that there was disagreement on whether or not to attend these pagan temple worship services, and it was creating division. And so Paul, in chapter eight, was trying to appeal to the strong in conscience to be willing to give up attending these pagan temple worship services, to be even willing to give up eating meat if it was going to cause a stumbling block for those weak in conscience. Paul doubled down on that in chapter nine, used his own life as an example, as an appeal for them to take that position, but they still were not convinced. And so in chapter 10, in our passage this morning, Paul is going to lay before the Corinthians a second reason, a more serious reason, why they should avoid these pagan temple worship services. And what I want us to see this morning, that as Paul lays a second reason, he's also going to address the Corinthians' two points of justification why they thought it was okay to attend these pagan temple worship services. And one reason in their minds was that idols are nothing, that idols aren't real. So attending these pagan temple worship services where idolatry was everywhere, temple prostitution was everywhere, in their minds, they thought it's no big deal because the idols aren't real anyways. But then the second point of justification that Paul will address is that in their minds, participating in the sacraments, and here specifically the Lord's Supper, somehow played as a safeguard for them spiritually. It was kind of like this spiritual vaccine, if you will, that was protecting them from all kinds of danger. In their minds, they thought, man, if we just partake of the Lord's Supper, we can do whatever we want to do and we'll just be fine spiritually. Paul's going to address both of those points. Now, the first thing that I wanna point out is in verse 14, Paul's strong and clear exhortation against idolatry. Now, part of the problem at the church in Corinth was their understanding and really their posture towards idolatry. So Paul's going to kind of lay before them just a clear command to avoid it and to flee it. The first word that you see in verse 14 is the word, therefore. This word is used to link our passage this morning with the passage that came before us. And so last week, we looked at how Paul used the nation of Israel as an example to avoid. This was a warning because the nation of Israel thought that they were fine spiritually just because they had all of these spiritual blessings. And yet they still fell into uh, idolatry. So Paul was holding them up as an example to avoid, as a warning that the Corinthians were in danger of falling into idolatry. So on the heels of that, Paul says very clearly, very concisely and directly, verse 14, flee 
idolatry. This word means to run from idolatry. This word means don't get as close as you can to idolatry. Run as far away as you possibly can from idolatry. And for the Corinthians here, this is laying on them in such a way that this would include attending these pagan temple worship services where idolatry was the central focus. All right, now, in order for us to understand how applicable this is for us today, we need to understand idolatry. Sometimes when we read the Bible, sometimes, especially when we, re- when we read the Old Testament, we look at what God's people did with idolatry and we kind of scratch our heads and we think to ourselves, how silly is that? that? God's people make these images like the golden calf and we think how silly it is that they're singing and they're worshiping and they're sacrificing to these images. And we can indirectly kind of create this distance between us today in 2021 compared to God's people thousands of years ago, and we can almost dismiss ourselves from this command in verse 14. And yet this command to flee idolatry is incredibly relevant for us today because idolatry is not just about the activity that you are participating in. Idolatry is about where your heart is directing its worship. Idolatry is less about what you are doing and it is more about what you are worshiping. And so maybe this morning you are not frequently attending pagan temple worship services. Perhaps you are not frequently sitting at the table where meat is being sacrificed to idols, but it is very likely that you are sitting at some kind of table spiritually in your heart where the idol lives that is in constant competition with Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we are going to invade that space in your heart where you are doing battle against idolatry. And the first step this morning is to recognize and to acknowledge the fact that all of us, all of us in this room have something to flee from. All of us are in danger of idolatry and we need to name and recognize that which is laying hold of our hearts, that spiritual table in our hearts that we frequently visit and worship these idols in our lives, those things that serve as substitutes functionally for Jesus Christ. I wanna start this morning as in terms of idolatry, we need just a helpful definition of, of what is it because I don't want you to think golden calf. I don't want you to think just some type of graven image. This is something much more practical for us. Here's a definition by Tim Keller. He says, idolatry is anything more important to you than God. It's anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. It is anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. All right, that's that's convicting, but we're just getting started this morning. All right, you need to understand, as John Calvin put it, that our hearts are idle factories, that we have a tendency to take really anything in this world, good or sinful, and we can turn it into an idol by making that ultimate in our lives. 
that an idol is something that we have elevated to the place that is only reserved for God himself. All right, now you and I, we can trust in God for eternity, for heaven, but idolatry challenges us of what we are trusting in functionally day in and day out to be our savior, what we look to and what we are truly living for. Now, here's the danger of idolatry. Idolatry never screams at us, never jumps up and down and says, worship me, give your life to me, and this will ruin your relationship with God. Idols do not talk to us that way. Idols are much sneakier than that. What idols do is they lure us in with these false promises that they will never deliver upon. And they sneak that in and they pull us in thinking that they will satisfy us, thinking they will give us some sort of comfort or identity and they never come through with their promise. And so I wanna maybe press this in a little bit this morning because there's a tendency to think that, oh, I I don't have any idols in my life. I, I don't really struggle with this. But let me just ask a number of diagnostic questions today. These are gonna be convicting, but I want these to just sit on open hearts this morning. In terms of, of trying to figure out where idols are in our lives, let me ask these questions. Number one, what is my greatest nightmare? What do I worry about the most? Secondly, what if I fail to achieve it or hang on to it would cause me to feel like I don't wanna live anymore? Here's another one. What, what do I rely on or comfort myself with when things become hard or difficult? Where's the first place that I run? Next one, what do I think most easily about? Where does my mind go when I'm not forced to think about anything else? Or how about this one? What prayer, if answered not the way I want, would make me seriously think about turning away from the Lord? How about this one? What would people closest to me say I'm most passionate about? Or this one, what do I really want out of life? What, what do I think would really make me happy? All right, those questions are, are helpful. They, they kind of direct us to perhaps what the idol is in our lives. And, and these are really convicting. These are piercing questions. But this morning, we need to go deeper in understanding idolatry. We need to take another step because idolatry is not one sin among others, but rather idolatry is a root sin that expresses itself in a variety of ways. All right, many times we think that a certain sinful behavior or a certain sinful activity is an idol. But in reality, what we are pointing to is just the symptom. It's just the root of, uh, or it's just the, the fruit of an idol, which is the root in our lives. And so this morning, I want us to get to the root issue, not just the symptoms, not just the fruit. We need to go deeper in there where, where our hearts are, where those idols tend to live. And I think there are four uh, most common root idols that reside in our hearts that can drive our behavior. You can almost categorize every sinful behavior into one of these four. Here they are. 
Number one, it's power. This one is a, a longing for influence or recognition. When you have that root uh, idol in your heart, it expresses itself in a variety of ways. Number two, control. This is a, a longing to have everything go according to my plan. Number three, comfort. This is a longing for pleasure. Number four, uh, approval. This is a longing to be accepted or desired. I think you can put almost uh, every sinful behavior into one of these four categories. But notice at the root of it uh, is a longing. It's a longing that we're looking to an idol to satisfy us and to fulfill us. And our longings and our desires, they reside in our hearts. All right, so take for example, pornography. Pornography is not the idol. Pornography is a symptom. It is a fruit of one of these root idols, most likely comfort, most likely trying to find pleasure outside of Jesus and outside what he has prescribed for us in God's word. Or take, for example, gossip. Gossip is not the idol. Gossip is a fruit of one of these root idols, maybe uh, power or control, that's driving the gossip. You can take just about every sinful behavior and when you drill down into it, when you ask these questions about why, what are you looking to when you look to these idols, it will lead you to one of those four idols. And look, I'm stressing this today because in terms of what we need to flee from, we need to understand specifically what is in our hearts. And I think sometimes when we want to grow, when we want to be transformed by Jesus Christ, we never go deep enough. We tend to stay on the surface. We tend to just address the activity or the sinful behavior, and we don't go deep enough into that root issue, what is living in our hearts. And what tends to happen is we might remove that sinful activity or that sinful behavior, but failing to address the root issue will over time, that root issue will express itself in different ways down the road. And I think this is what was happening with the Corinthians here. The Corinthians, I think we're failing to address the root issue of idolatry because in their minds, they were thinking that the solution was just about the activity. It was just about the behavior. They thought, surely our sin will kind of go away. Our sin will kind of be, be dealt with if we just participate in the activity of the Lord's Supper. Let's just do this sacrament and it will, it will solve our issue of sin in our lives. It'll solve kind of attending these pagan temple worship services, but they were just on the surface. They were just addressing the behavior or the religious activity and not what was residing in their hearts. And my question for you this morning is could you be doing the exact same thing? Could you this morning in terms of trying to deal and address with the idols that are in your heart and in your life, are you only looking to the activity and kind of changing it out with a religious activity, like going to church or doing your devotions or serving or tithing or fill in the blank as a way to kind of appease for the sin that's in your life instead of drilling down deep into your hearts 
looking to what's on the throne of your heart and addressing it at the root issue. See church, we've got to get to the heart. If we want to be changed, if we want to grow, if we want to be transformed, do not settle for the activity, get to the heart. So how do we do that? Well, Thomas Chalmers, I think helps us. Thomas Chalmers was a Scottish minister in the 1800s. And he said this, he said, the best way to overcome the world is not with morality or self-discipline. Christians overcome the world by seeing the beauty and the excellence of Christ. That they overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than the world, Christ. The only way to dispose the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Look, church, we, we address the heart because at the core of every idol is unbelief. That is at the core of every idol, the sin of unbelief, where you are failing to believe some aspect of the gospel of Jesus Christ, some aspect of who God is. And the only way that we can flee from idolatry, that we can run away from sin, is when our hearts see something better that will provide true satisfaction and true comfort and true approval that we long for. And that is found in Jesus Christ. In order for your heart to say no to sin, you need a stronger yes. And that stronger yes is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only one that is stronger than sin, that is more beautiful than sin, that is more desirous than sin. And Jesus holds the power to release that grip that your heart has around its idol and can find its satisfaction in him. But the reality is, and someone's got to say this, the reality is, is that your idol will never love you back. Your idol will never, never treat you the way that Jesus treats you. Our idols, they lead us into serving a false master. Our idols lead us into trusting in a false rescuer. Our idols lead us into loving a false lover and they never deliver upon that promise that they're trying to make to us. But guess who does? Jesus. Jesus every time does exactly what he says he will do. Jesus treats us so much better than what we deserve. And look, unlike our idols, it's Jesus who doesn't give us what we want. It's Jesus who gives us what we need. See, unlike our idols, Jesus doesn't give us superficial satisfaction. Jesus gives us deep satisfaction, deep within our hearts, life to the full. See, unlike our idols, Jesus doesn't give us worldly freedom, which is more like bondage. Jesus gives us true freedom found in him. Do you guys remember the promise in verse 13? Remember what Paul tells us here, that there's always a way out, there's always an escape when we're, when we're faced with temptation, when we're faced with sin. Paul here, I think, is connecting this idea that our escape when it comes to idolatry is Jesus. And the reason why that is true is because Jesus chose not to escape 
from the suffering on the cross as he paid for our sin, as he took our place, as he paid our penalty, you and I can escape the bondage and the condemnation and the guilt when we trust in Jesus. He is our way out. And look, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're being confronted today with maybe idols in your life that you didn't know were idols, and you're feeling these chains in your life, you're feeling a a type of enslavement, can I just plead with you to come to Jesus today? Can Can I draw your attention to the freedom that Jesus offers you today, that Jesus offers you real forgiveness? And it's not freedom according to the world, it's freedom found in him, where Jesus meets you exactly where you are in all of your shame and all of your guilt. He meets you there and he offers you grace. He offers you mercy. He offers you kindness that leads you to repentance. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you want Jesus in your life, you want salvation that he offers you freely, All you have to do is acknowledge the fact that you are a sinner, that you are unable to save yourself and that you identify the fact that you need to put your trust and your faith in Jesus, turning from your sin and trusting in the fact that Jesus paid for your sin on the cross and he offers you his righteousness so you can be accepted before God. Look, it's it's a free gift of salvation, of eternal life. It's the free gift found in Jesus. Look, church, we flee from sin. We flee from idolatry when we see the unconditional love and mercy and kindness in God. When we look at him and because of Jesus, we don't see condemnation. We don't see anger. We see acceptance and love because of Christ. Look, who who else is, is going to handle your shame? Who else is going to handle your guilt today? Who else? What kind of idol can actually handle your fear and your deepest anxieties? Who's going to provide a solution for the debt of your sin? None like Jesus. Look, we flee from idolatry by fleeing to Jesus that Jesus has made a way for us to replace these idols with himself. He is our escape. Well, after Paul's concise command here in verse 14 to flee from idolatry, I think in verse 15, Paul basically tells us, I want you to think this through. And Paul is saying, judge for yourselves, which means I'm about to lay out before you a logical argument why you should flee from idolatry. And I wanna point out here three reasons why we should flee uh, idolatry from verses 16 through 22. Here's the first one. I'm gonna spend the most time with this one. I'll spend less time in the last two. But reason number one, why we should flee idolatry is because God's people should not participate at the table of Christ and the table of demons. 
Verse 16, Paul uh, introduces this concept of the Lord's Supper. Paul talks about uh, the cup of blessing, which is a reference to the cup that symbolizes the blood of Jesus that was shed for us on the cross. Paul mentions the bread that we break. This is uh, symbolically representing the body of Jesus that was broken for us on the cross so our sins could be forgiven. And if you notice here, Paul is using these rhetorical questions to drive home his point that participating in the Lord's Supper is not just a lifeless, rote, religious activity. That there is spiritual significance in this ordinance whereby God's people use the bread, they use the cup to rehearse and to remind one another of the incredible blessings that we have in Jesus because of what he accomplished in his death and in his resurrection. I think Paul is, is, uh, is, is aiming towards that. And you can see that by the way that he uses this word participation or participant in verse 16, he uses it twice in verse 18 and verse 20. Now this word is the Greek word koinonia, which means to intimately share with someone in something. All right, it means to have deep fellowship. And he's using that word to talk about the Lord's Supper, that the Lord's Supper is this sacred and intimate meal that's experienced by God's people with one another. Now, the bread and the cup, these are not extra holy, but they're, they're symbols. But what makes the Lord's Supper special is that Jesus is the host of this meal, that Jesus resides with us through his spirit when we partake in this ordinance. Now, I want you to notice what Paul then says about this table, the, the pagan temple meals in verses 19 and 20. If you notice, he does two things here. Number one, Paul says that the idols are nothing. All right, these idols are not real. But notice what Paul says is real. What Paul, I think, emphasizes here that what is real is the demonic influence that is connected to idolatry. Paul here is showing us that there is always something behind the idols in our lives, and it is the satanic powers in the spiritual world. All right, and now Paul does not want the Corinthians, he does not want us to engage in demonic activity through our idols. Now, this is a stunning kind of caution for us. This is a stunning, I think, uh, warning for us, especially because we live in the West and we don't always, um, we're not always in tune with the spiritual world that is very real and the spiritual warfare that is all around us. And yet I think what Paul is telling us today is that our participation in idolatry, when we fall into idol worship, whatever that looks like in our lives, that is a form of demonic activity that opens up our hearts to be influenced by satanic powers. That's what this text is telling us today. So look, when you look at pornography, that is not just pornography. There is a demonic activity that is behind all of that. When you gossip, you are not just gossiping. When you commit covetousness, you are not just coveting. 
There is demonic activity. The satanic powers are behind those idols and we need to be aware of that. That our idols today, they serve as these pagan tables in our own hearts whereby satanic influence can take place because every sin is cosmic treason against God. Every sin is not just the sense of, man, I made a mistake, but every sin is cosmic treason against a holy God. Now, some of us may be uncomfortable with that kind of language. Some of us may think, man, that's just too direct. That's too, that's too heavy, pastor. That, that's, that's too dark. And you might be tempted this morning to perhaps change the language in how you talk about sin and how you describe sin so that it's easier to stomach. You, you might reduce sin to just calling it a mistake. I just, I just messed up here. I, I made a mistake. Or that that's just part of who I am. Or that's part of my DNA. Or I was born this way. As if that releases you from the responsibility of sin. And look, church, that is not biblical language when it comes to sin. And I think undermining sin and how we talk about it, kind of downplaying it, makes it easier for us to commit. I think this morning, we need to understand and be reminded that there is a real spiritual world where there is spiritual warfare going on all around us and it is influencing us and it is impacting us on a daily basis. That there is a kingdom of righteousness that is ruled and reigned by God himself and there is a domain of darkness that is ruled by Satan himself. It is a domain of condemnation, of guilt and bondage. And when you sin, you are participating in the domain of darkness. It is not just a mistake. It is something way deeper than that. And if you look and if you read Ephesians 6, for example, it will remind you of the spiritual battle in the spiritual world that is all around us, that is impacting us on a daily basis. And the word of God says, take a stand, stand firm against the attacks from our enemy. But our willing participation in idolatry, according to Paul here, is a direct connection to the satanic powers and the demonic activity that's behind our idols, and we must flee from it. Do not get as close as you possibly can to it. Do not get close to the fire and play around with it as if you are strong enough spiritually for it. Flee from the idols in your life. Look, church, the war is not just with our culture. The war is not just against worldly ideologies. The war is not just against unbiblical worldviews. The war lies in your heart that there is a spiritual battle going on for what is in the throne of your heart, what is residing there and what you are giving your worship and your allegiance and your affections towards. And look, you have a real enemy who wants to devour you. 
You, you have a real enemy who watches you, a real enemy who studies you, a real enemy who knows you better than you know yourself. He knows all of your weak points. He knows the time of day that you are most susceptible to sinning. And look, he wants to destroy you. He does not want to trip you up. He doesn't want to cause you to stumble. He wants to take you out and to cause you to become spiritually disqualified so you do not win the prize. He wants to take you out. So look, you might think that a little bit of sin here and there is okay but the enemy is laying a trap for you, waiting for the perfect moment to take you out. Look, greed is not just greed. Lust is not just lust. Anger is not just anger. Those are evidences of a war all around us that we cannot see. And my fear is that the enemy is having a field day with God's people. You have to address the heart. And Paul's challenge for us is that you cannot, you cannot have it both ways. Verse 21, Paul is saying, you cannot participate at the Lord's table, taking the Lord's supper, communing with Jesus, and also at the table of an idol communing with demons. And the reason why that's true is because the idol that's in your heart can only fit one person. You cannot fit Jesus and your idol there. There's not enough room and you must choose. Or what Jesus says here, he says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money or fill in the blank, God and your idol. Flee from idolatry. Secondly, another reason Paul lays before us why we need to flee, verse 17, is that God's people are bound together in unity. Paul says that God's people are many within the church, within the body, there are many of us. God's church is a diverse church. And specifically here in the church of Corinth, there are many different kinds of opinions related. Should we go to these pagan dinners or not? But Paul reminds them that you are one in Christ. You are unified together. Even the Lord's Supper reminds us of that as we all kind of share in the bread and the cup that we are unified and one in Jesus. I think Paul reminds them of this because those who thought it was okay to attend these pagan dinners are now challenged with thinking what is best for the whole, not just me, what's best for the whole of God's church? What's best for unity? And here, it's with solidarity with the weaker brother. It's not attending those pagan worship services. This is a good reminder for us to make sure that we are protecting the oneness of our church by avoiding being united with other sins and causing others to stumble. And then finally, the third reason I think Paul gives us why we should flee idolatry is that God's people should not provoke God to jealousy. Verse 22, I think Paul is saying, look, don't put God to the test like the Israelites did in the wilderness. Do not provoke God by committing spiritual adultery. And he says, look, we're not stronger than God. We can't fool God thinking we can have both our idols and Jesus. God is a jealous 
God, meaning he wants our full affection, our complete devotion, our entire allegiance, not because he's narcissistic, but because he knows what's best for us to flourish is giving him all of who we are. Therefore, we must flee. Look, before I close, I just want to say, if, if you're here today, and look, I know idolatry is a heavy topic. It is a convicting topic. But I just wanna say, if you are here today and you walk in here and you are exhausted because you're, you're trying to live this double life, you're trying to live for Jesus and you've got idols in your life. If you walk in here today just tired and, and worn out, look, my call to you is to stop and repent of your sin. If you're here today and you are just weary, you are tired because you're trying to be two different people, maybe not on the outside, maybe you've mastered what it looks like to be a good Christian, but inwardly, you're being two different people where you like Jesus and yet you like your sin and going back and forth, back and forth is wearing you out. Look, my encouragement is for you to come to Jesus. My encouragement is for you to be reminded today of this open invitation by Jesus himself who says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. And that rest that Jesus offers to us who are trying to go back and forth is an offer of forgiveness. It's an offer of love. It's an offer filled with kindness where Jesus has everything that you are looking for in this life. He has it all and he offers it freely to you if you just place your faith in him and turn from your sins. Benediction this morning. John tells us in 1 John 5, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know, we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Church, I wanna leave you with this thought that you will flee from idols when you understand that everything that you're looking for, everything that you're longing for is found in Jesus, who is the true God and eternal life. Run to him and away from idols. Church, I love you. Hope you have a great Sunday. We'll see you back here next Sunday morning.